Today's presentation of TechBiter Worldwide is presented by the Voice of America in special English. The Voice of America, as you know, presents the face of the United States to the rest of the world. Some of the programs they present are in slower, special English. These programs typically are presented using simplified English and slow, carefully spoken speech. They're designed for those who speak English as a second language. Today's presentation of TechBiter Worldwide may sound a bit like one of those presentations because I recently had surgery and I'm still on some of those post-op happy pills that tend to make thinking just a little fuzzy. So if the program makes a little less sense than normal, that's why. And if everything seems perfectly normal, oh well. Hi, this is TechBiter Worldwide for the week of November 18th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in far less than an hour. Or if I have to speak really slowly, it might extend to be an hour. Because we leave out the sports, the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Okay, so it's November, closing in on Thanksgiving, and I guess it's time for me to like Vista again. Now, I should point out, and I'm sure you know this already, when I describe my experience with an application or service, that's exactly what it is, my experience. Now, I make every effort to be truthful about what I report, but the reports are still clearly subjective, not objective. The results I see are based on a very small sample, typically one, two, or three machines. You've noticed, probably, that I have wavered a bit more than usual when talking about Vista. Earlier, I had described a disk thrashing problem. Well, that's something that has been documented, and it seemed to me that that's what I was seeing. I had described a stuttering playback problem from iTunes. That has also been documented. It seemed to me that that's what I was seeing. But it now appears that the problems I observed were primarily hardware issues. In the past 60 days or so, my computer spent a lot of time back at TCR Computers. That's where I bought it a little less than two years ago. Starting in September, I noticed some regular black screen crashes. Not the blue screen of death, but these are black screens. Typically, they involved the machine becoming virtually unresponsive, CPU usage spiking at 99%, a lot of wild disk activity, usually some odd visual effects, and then a crash. Eventually, the situation got so bad that the machine simply would not boot. In fact, that happened several times. I kept taking it back to TCR. They kept finding what they thought was the problem and fixing it. Well, the initial diagnosis was a failing boot drive. TCR was able to clone the existing boot drive, so I came home with a slightly larger disk drive. But before TCR released the computer to me, they thought they saw a memory problem, so they had also replaced two gigabytes of RAM in the machine. The problem went away for a while, came back. Research suggested that the problem might be with some drivers, and the problem did disappear for a week or so after the drivers were fixed. iTunes worked well, 
Sometimes. But sometimes it stuttered so much that the music was simply unlistenable. And then I encountered more black screen crashes. In an effort to determine whether the problem really was Vista, I formatted the C drive and reinstalled Windows XP. And for an hour or so, I thought the problem really had been Vista. The machine behaved well. Then it crashed and would not restart. I bundled it up, took it back to TCR once again. I felt that I had ruled out Vista as the source of the problem, and I considered that at that point there were three likely points of failure, either the video card, that was my number one pick, the motherboard, or the CPU. Well, this time, TCR used the big hammer approach. They replaced the motherboard, the CPU, the video subsystem, both sticks of RAM, again, the DVD player, the DVD burner, the second hard drive, and that included transferring a lot of data, and the power supply. I brought the machine home again after paying the cost of the repairs, zero dollars, by the way. I've mentioned TCR's three-year warranty. That's a good example of how the three-year warranty works. If I were wearing a hat at the moment, I would now be tipping it to TCR. In the week after I brought the repaired machine home, I ran iTunes a lot, because iTunes seems effectively to be the canary in this coal mine. When iTunes would start skipping, I knew that a blue screen was imminent. Well, iTunes has been playing just fine. The problems I had previously ascribed to Vista actually were hardware problems. So the Vista reports will continue to be kind of an ongoing work in progress. Vista is now running well, and once again, I have to say that I like what I see with Vista. In fact, I have started using the new Vista start menu. Previously, I had replaced the Vista start menu with the older style menu because I thought I liked the hierarchical style menus. However, Windows Vista has a new feature, one copied from Apple, that allows you to open the start menu and start typing. For example, I open the start menu and type W-O-R. It suggests that I probably want to start Microsoft Word. I can then hit the Enter key and Word starts. I don't have to drill down through layer after layer of menu. So maybe that's a better idea after all. You may be wondering what happened with activations. When things started failing, I didn't have time to remove applications. So when I reinstalled the operating system and some of the applications, you might expect that they thought they had already been installed and activated on another machine. If you thought that, you thought right. In a lot of cases, software has to be activated when it's installed. This is the latest form of copy protection. Now, keep in mind that copy protection primarily inconveniences honest users and does little, if anything, to stop real pirates. However, the current methods of activation are at least relatively painless and humane. For example, when I reinstalled Windows Vista, the activation examines the hard drive, the CPU, and the main board that the operating system is installed in. It probably looks at some other components, too. 
As long as little or nothing changes, you can install Vista as many times as you need to on a single machine. You may remember that I had installed Vista originally as an upgrade. Then I formatted the hard drive to get a clean installation. The second installation on the machine activated without a problem because the hard drive, the mainboard, and the CPU were the same. Well, after TCR had replaced all of the hardware, the installation would not activate. Required a phone call to Microsoft's activation number. And I had to answer two questions. Question number one, is this copy of Vista one that came with a computer? No, it's not. Is this copy of Vista installed on any other computer? No, it is not. After answering those two questions, I was handed a new activation key, Windows Vista activated as expected. Now, when I installed Office 2007, I expected the same problem. After all, it had been installed on the same desktop, three times, in fact, once under XP and twice under Vista. And it had been installed once on a notebook computer. Now, that's permitted by Microsoft's licensing policies. Microsoft allows you to install the Office product, a basic standard Office product, on two machines, a desktop and a laptop machine, so long as both are not in use at the same time. And they pretty much take your word for that. Office installed and activated on the desktop without requiring any intervention. So did the Corel Graphics Suite X3 and Corel Paint Shop Pro X2. Adobe has a pretty strict but flexible system. Adobe applications may be installed on exactly two computers, so long as any given application is used on only one at a time. Well, I had installed CS3 on the desktop and also on a notebook computer. Adobe does offer a transfer option that requires deactivating the installation on one machine before activating it on another. Because I had not run the transfer process, the activation failed. I expected that. I called Adobe, explained the situation, and was provided within minutes a new activation code. Sage time slips, on the other hand, appeared to activate normally. I hadn't expected that to be the case. I was rather surprised when it did. But then a week later, on a Sunday, time slips told me that it wasn't licensed and refused to start. The company's support desk is open only Monday through Friday, so I wasn't able to obtain any help on Sunday. Now, I consider that to be about the worst possible way to handle activation. If you're going to challenge the user, do it immediately at install time. Don't do it a week later. And if you must challenge the user, do at least provide some kind of grace period if you're not open 24-7 and give the user a few days before you shut down the program. But overall, reinstallation and getting the system up and running was relatively painless. TechMiter Worldwide frequently features a stupid spam of the week. Well, in place of that this week, a thanks to PayPal. I received a message from PayPal, and yes, it really was from PayPal, inviting me to take a phishing challenge. It's an easy five-minute quiz aimed at helping everybody understand how phishing works and how to avoid being victimized. I consider this more like a practice test than a final exam, so I'm going to share my answers with you. You'll find some screenshots on the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. Now, even without my help, just about everybody should get a perfect score on this little quiz. 
But let's start at the beginning. Let's start with the email that invited me to take the quiz. There was nothing in the message that screamed, it's a fake. And several clues strongly suggested that it is legitimate. However, there was nothing I could see from the email that proved it was really from PayPal. On the website, you'll notice that that I have obscured my own email address because it's the one that only PayPal knows. I'm not going to share that with anybody. PayPal, in the message, called me by name in the salutation using my name exactly the way they have it on file. Now, either of those could be a lucky guess. The message claimed it to be from PayPal, but I know that that's meaningless. It could very easily be forged. So I took a look at the source, what's behind the email. The source panel showed me the link that I'm supposed to click, and it confirmed that it indeed did go to PayPal. Instead of clicking, I typed it in. If you're ever in doubt, remember, instead of clicking a link, simply type the information in. So, question number one from the PayPal phishing quiz. Phishing is a form of fraud designed specifically to steal your identity, true or false? Well, clearly, that's true. Question number two. You can be sure that an email is valid based on the sender's email address. I just said that you can't depend on that, so that's definitely false. If something claims to be from security at paypal.com, Don't trust it. I could send you a message that looks like it's from security at paypal.com. Question number three. We may occasionally ask you for your full name and password in a PayPal email. Absolutely, totally, irrevocably false. PayPal and no other legitimate site will ever ask you to confirm information they already have on file in this manner. A legitimate site, if it wants to confirm information, will show you the information on file and ask you to confirm it. PayPal, and again, no other legitimate site, is ever going to ask you to confirm your full name, your password, particularly your password, credit card or debit card numbers, PIN numbers. Never, ever will they ask for a PIN. Uh, The driver's license number or social security numbers, those will not be asked. Question number four. A PayPal email will never contain attachments or software. Absolutely true. PayPal will never send you software by email. Neither will Microsoft, neither will any other company. If any legitimate firm needs you to update a piece of software, they will tell you how to obtain the update from their website. And question number five, clicking on a link in an email is the most reliable way to get to your PayPal account. The answer is false. Clicking on a link in an email is the most reliable way to get somewhere you don't want to go. Well, with or without my help, you probably would earn a perfect score on that quiz. If you take the online quiz, you may notice that some of the sample messages in the quiz start with Dear Valued PayPal Customer. That, of course, is an instant indication that the message is not from PayPal. Any message from PayPal will call you by name and will use the name exactly as you provided it to PayPal. As an introduction to Nerdly News this week, you recall my account of a failing Seagate drive. 
The replacement drive has arrived, and so far, it seems to be operating normally. Seagate now owns Maxtor, a company with a considerably less sterling reputation than Seagate. And now eWeek magazine reports that an undisclosed number of Maxtor basic personal storage 3200 units were sent to stores and to customers with a little something extra installed. A virus that steals passwords. Kaspersky Labs warned Seagate, and the company is now warning customers. Besides stealing passwords, the virus can delete some files, and it may disable the host computer's antivirus application. The virus was loaded onto drives at a manufacturing plant in, guess where? Yep, China. And the stolen passwords are sent to a server that's located in, right again, China. Seagate won't say how many disks are affected, but maintains the number is small. Seagate isn't sure how many of the drives are actually in customers' hands and how many remain in the retail chain. The drives were shipped after August of 2007. Again, these are MacStore Basics Personal Storage 3200 units. Now, according to eWeek, Seagate is investigating, but the company has resumed shipments of drives made by that plant. If it seems to you... The shipping drives from a plant that created infected drives is just a little premature in light of the ongoing and therefore incomplete investigation. You're not alone. Seagate says it will provide a free 60-day download of virus protection software to scan MaxTor drives and eliminate the infection. Now, Seagate, in all fairness, isn't the first company to sell a virus-infected product to customers. Probably won't be the last. This isn't the first black eye for Chinese manufacturing either, and it probably won't be the last. Now, I recall the Japanese Camera Inspection Institute, created not long after World War II. If you purchased a camera or a lens or a flash or any other piece of high-end photographic gear from a Japanese manufacturer in the 1950s or the 1960s, the hardware came with a little something extra, a little gold oval sticker, said JCII. Depending on the manufacturer, the JCII either examined every single unit or spot-checked every 20th or 50th or 100th unit. Japanese manufacturing had a lousy reputation after World War II, and the JCII was one effort to assure buyers about quality. Fast forward to 2007. If the Chinese government is unwilling to assure the safety and quality of goods made there, then U.S. manufacturers who import those goods from China need to perform their own inspections to assure consumers that imported goods are safe and well-made. And if you visited the MySpace page for some musicians recently, your computer may now be ill. Pages for several artists had been hacked and contained links to malware sites. Visiting one of the infected sites would take your browser to a site in... China, where attempts would be made to load malware onto your system by telling you that you needed to load a new codec to view a video. If this sounds familiar, yeah, it's the same ploy that was recently used on porn sites. The link, of course, does not install a video codec, but it does install a keylogger and some other applications that allow crooks to see what you're doing, steal your passwords, and take over your computer. 
As Microsoft users have seen, the easier something is to use, the more likely it is to be compromised. And that's exactly one of the reasons that Microsoft operating systems have historically had so many flaws. Microsoft initially concentrated on interoperability and ease of use. That is exactly what MySpace and most of the other social networking sites do right now. MySpace removed the malware, restored the proper content, and issued a surly press release accusing the thieves of breaking the law. I'll bet those thieves are really quaking in their boots. A few days early, happy Thanksgiving. It's coming up later this week. TechBiter Worldwide will take the week off next week, so... See you again in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. This has been TechBiter Worldwide for the week of November 18th, 2007. I'm Bill Blinn, still speaking in special English. Check out the website www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.